Thank you so much for joining us at Gold Country Church in Auburn. We are excited to share this message with you and hope you are encouraged by it. Join us in person at 9 a.m. and 10.45 a.m. Hey, it's an honor and pleasure once again to be here. Uh, I always find it a privilege whenever I'm invited to come and, and, and to, to preach and to share from my heart. And, of course, Craig, you know, he, he just said that there's a, there's a group of us that are going through, you know, the book of Acts. And I just want to personally thank Craig for the scripture that he uh, gave me today because I'm not going to lie. Today's, today's passage uh, is challenging. Today's passage is one of those uh, books that when you read it and you're going through the Bible and you read it, you're like, goodness, holy moly. Uh, I'm going to come back to that one because it's got some things in it that definitely bring to light um, some of the challenges uh, in the Bible sometimes that we struggle with. And so I'm excited to share uh, and to walk you through this and to take you through some of the things that God has been teaching me in this passage. Uh, I hope everybody at home is doing well all things considered in these crazy times. Uh, I was getting ready to leave today, and I was saying goodbye to my, my kids, and one of my daughters says, you know, Dad, I think you need a haircut. And uh, obviously, we've all been at home, and some things are different, and so uh, even our kids are noticing things are different. But I'm excited to be here. Uh, I just want to say, you know, if you, are, if you are not a Christian, and you are listening to this, we are very, very excited uh, but I just want to say that, that this, this scripture, this patch is in, in Acts chapter 5, might challenge you in some certain ways. Because I'm going to tell you what, as a believer, this is one of those passages that challenged me. And I think as you dive into this scripture and you look into things, um, <clears throat> you, you, you kind of wonder, what, what is God doing? Why is, God, why is God's wrath and justice sometimes seem so harsh sometimes seem so big, sometimes seem um, just uncomprehendable to those of us who live in our day and age, in our westernized culture where, you know, we live in a very individualistic culture and society where we kind of look at things through a lens of our own world, of our own self. And when you look at a passage in Acts chapter 5 and you see kind of the primitive um, old school mantra that, that is in this passage, you step back and you go, what, what is going on here? But I think what is so vital in our walk with God, in our, in our journey as getting to know God, is that we have to know the whole picture of God. We have to be able to see God in all of his wonder and all of his facets and all the greatness that he possesses. Because a lot of us, a lot of us, me included, we like to focus on all the, you know, the easy things to focus on with God. We like to focus on the fact that he died for our sins, the fact that he loves us, the fact that he pursues us, all the incredible miracles that he performed, all the great things that he did, and all those things are true. But we neglect to see sometimes who God really is, that he is a God of justice, that he is a God that has standards, that he is a God that does things at times that we just don't understand. And the other thing that God has convicted me on with this passage is authenticity, be an authentic person. Because from a, little, from a young age, we are taught real early that it's not okay to be authentic. We're taught at a young age that, you know, you have to act this way to fit in. 
You have to be this way when you're around a certain group of people. And what we're going to see in this passage is that God deeply values us being authentic. Because a lot of times, ironically, the place where we should be the most authentic is right here in the church of God. And a lot of times when we come to church, this is actually the most fake that we are. We end up putting on a completely different face when we come to church than who we are in our real world, in our work life, in our family life. And this is one of those places where we should be genuinely authentic. And so with that, let's dive into the passage here in Acts. Uh, And before we do that, we're actually going to go back to Acts chapter 4 and start in verse 32. Now, before I was the head coach at Placer, I was actually the football coach at Pioneer High School. And there was this we had this need. We, had, we, we were in need of a defensive line coach. We were in need of somebody that could fill in a position for us. And I was searching, and I could not find a guy. And so finally, a, a teacher at the school came up to me, and he said, hey, hey, Joe, I'd like to be on your staff. And at first, my, my initial thought was I had some reservations because this was a really nice guy, but this was not the type of guy who I thought could be a quality football coach. Number one, he was socially awkward. He... I didn't know if he knew the game. I knew he had played the game. I knew at some point he had coached. But he wasn't the type of guy that just jumped off the pages. This is a dynamic personality. This is a guy that I want working with kids. This is the guy I want in my program. But at the end of the day, I didn't have anybody else, so I had to hire this guy. And so the season progressed, and the first thing first is I'm like, man, the guys that he's going to be working with, these are hard dudes. These are, these are guys that have a past. These are guys that are, that are not always the nicest kids. And this is the, these are the kids that he's going to have to work with. And so at first, I was, I was extremely nervous. And then as the season progressed, I started to notice that this coach was truly just being himself. As socially awkward as he was, as weird of a guy as he was, all of a sudden the kids just rallied around this guy. And they actually fell in love with this guy. And by the end of the year, he was probably the most popular guy on the staff. And it's because he was being authentic. He was being exactly who he was. And the kids love that about him. The kids thought, the kids jumped all over. And, and I'm talking like tough, hard-nosed dudes. And these guys absolutely loved and adored this coach. And the other thing that blew me away about him was his knowledge of the game. He knew far more than I had given him credit for. This guy possessed things uh, far, that far surpassed my standards and what I thought about him. And it just led me to think about my own heart, and myself. Am I truly an authentic person? And so let's jump into verse 32 in Acts chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and jump in with me. We're going to read through it. It says this. It says, all believers were, and underline that word, one, in heart and in mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And here we go. We have the Holy Spirit at work. We have the church who is unified, and they're doing incredible things. They're working together. There was, uh, you know, they were were unified. And I can tell you what, one of the hardest things to be in any organization, in anything, is unified. As you go through life, as you start to see things, it is really tough to be unified. I mean, just look at our country. I mean, there, there is very... There is not very many people that are unified today in our country. You look at relationships. I mean, look at marriages. A lot of marriages struggle to be unified. If you go into the church, it's hard to find groups that are unified. 
And this is something that is tough because relationships are tough. Relationships, when you get people involved, things tend to go wrong. And here's a unique, special time in history where the apostles and the people came together and they were unified in one heart and one mind. And it continues in verse 33 and it says this, and it says, And God's grace was powerfully at work in them, that there was no needy persons among them. And from time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had a need. And I look at this, and I think about this. Number one, God's grace was on them. Why? Because they were together, number one. And number two, the Holy Spirit was at work, and they were leading people to do things that were incredible, that were leading to incredible acts of generosity. I mean, in this day and age, for somebody to sell their entire house, to sell, uh, to give their possessions, that was their identity in this day and age. And for them to do that was an incredible thing. And it made me think of my wife. Um, She always tells a story about growing up in the church. And she said that when she was young, her and her twin brother and her sister had to go to homeschool one year because her mother, their mom's health, my mother-in-law, Michelle, she was having some serious health issues. And so... Because of that, she couldn't take them to school. She couldn't do all these different things. They had to homeschool for a a year. And the thing that has always stood out in my wife's walk that has helped her follow Christ even closer was the incredible generosity that their church showed to their family. Here was a family in need. Here was a family who was struggling, who had a sick uh, parent. One parent was working all the time. Another parent was at home sick. The kids were at home being homeschooled. They were in a desperate time of need. And the people that came to their aid, the people that came to help them was the church. There was an incredible act of generosity. And becoming an authentic Christian is that. Becoming somebody who is authentic, becoming somebody who is a true follower of Christ is becoming incredibly generous. And my question to you is do you have that type of generosity? Not only with your time, not only with your, 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 your hearts, but with your resources. And right now, let me tell you, this is a tough time to be generous. Right now, we're in a time and place in our culture, in our society, where there are some of you at home that I'm talking to right now who are in a, who are in a place of need, who don't know if they have a job, who don't know if they're going to have a paycheck, And these are the times where people from the church need to step up and need to rise. These are times and places where we, as the believers of Christ, can come along people who are hurting, who can come along the people who need help, not just with our time, but also with our resources. Because I can tell you this much. I know for me and in my own heart, it's easy to give my time. It's a lot easier to go and serve people. But when you ask me to give of my resources, when you ask me to give of my finances, at least for me personally, that's when things get very, very difficult. And God's calling us. God is telling us. And as we see as the example here in Acts chapter 4, God is saying, look, you need to be generous with your resources. You need to help your church. You need to be givers. You need to give your money to God. Are we incredibly generous when we are claiming to be believers of Christ. Verse 36 says this, because they give us an example of somebody who was. 
And if you look in verse 36 of chapter 4, we see the ultimate example of somebody who we are to aspire to be. And that was this guy named Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. And I love that they give all these details about Joseph who would be nicknamed Barnabas afterwards. Because anytime the Bible gives you a lot of details about somebody, they want you to remember them. And here's a guy that the Bible wants you to remember. They want you to remember this guy named Barnabas, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostle call, who the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement sold a field he owned, and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So here's the ultimate example of the person who we should follow, the ultimate example of somebody who has a generous heart, who gives everything in order to follow the gospel. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, hey, go sell all of your possessions and sell your house. But what I am saying is ask God. Talk to the person who you live with. Talk to your wife, your spouse, your husband. And ask yourself and look in your own mirror and say, am I a generous person? Because as we dive into verse 1 of chapter 5, we're going to see the exact opposite of, what should we, of what, who we should be. And here's where this, the passage takes a turn with Ananias and Sapphira. So we jump into uh, <clears throat> chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. It says, this, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And ladies, I want you to underline this in verse two. It says, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And ladies, I want you to underline verse two because when we are, when you look at this passage and it says his wife's full knowledge, she was a full participant in this. And a lot of times we get things confused. You know, oh, hey, my husband's supposed to be the spiritual leader and all these different things. And so, you know, we think, oh, we have to follow no matter what. And if you look at this, this is an example of you absolutely do need, not need to follow anyone when it's involved with sin, when it's involved with corruption, when it's involved with something that's bad. And for the guys and for the men in the church, for the husbands, we need to listen to our wives. If our wives come to us and say, hey, uh, I don't think we should do this. We have no right to just say, well, we're going to do this because I said so. <laughs> we don't have the, the right to bully her. I mean, if you look at Proverbs 31, you look at the example of, uh, 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 of a righteous wife and, and the things that it says about a virtuous woman. For us to not listen to our wives in these type of times, are, it's crazy. It's foolish. But here we start to see how the story turns. And we continue in verse three, it says this. Now, Peter said this, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you have received in the land, for the land? And my question is this, it says, how, he says, Satan has filled your heart. What are we full, full with? What are we filled with? You see, right here, we start to see Satan was trying to interrupt and thwart what was happening. He was trying to interrupt and destroy the early church. And this not only happens in church, but this happens in relationships. This happens in life. And we see it time and time again in the Bible where the enemy comes to come kill, steal, and destroy. 
See, if you look throughout the Bible, you see different times when people are full of the Spirit. You see where the apostles are full of the Holy Spirit, and they're doing all these radical, incredible things, and they're moving the gospel, and they're changing the world, and they're changing lives because they're full of the Spirit. And then you see these other times where the enemy, where Satan is involved. You look at, for example, Judas, you know, at the Last Supper together, and it says, and Jesus says, Judas, go do your thing. It says, at that point, Satan entered Judas' body, and he left to go uh, essentially sell Jesus out and lead soldiers to Jesus to be arrested and the thing is is we are all created to be full we are all created to be filled we all are all created to have a relationship with Jesus Christ we are all created to be full of something and my question to you is today what are you full of are you full of the Holy Spirit are you full of hope that God gives us are you full of the things that Jesus has to offer. Because look, <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. There are times where you should be angry. There are times where you should have healthy fear. There are times where you should be authentic and question and ask God, God, what, what is going on here? But at the end of the day, when you look back and you step back and you look in the mirror, are you full of the things that, are you full of God's trust? Are you full of the Holy Spirit? Do you trust God? In these desperate times. You see, Ananias was full of something that we should never be full of. And he was full with what only Satan could offer. In verse 4 it says this. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold? Was it the money at your disposal? What do you think of doing? Or what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to human beings. But to God. And here's the thing about Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't have to give this to the apostles. They didn't have to bring this money. They could have just been honest. They could have said, look, here's a portion of, our, our, uh, of, of what we sold from our property. Here it is. And everything would have been fine. But the problem is, is when you get behind the scenes, when you look at the core reason that they were doing this. Number one, they looked at Barnabas and they thought to themselves, man, this guy... This guy's getting a lot of praise. This guy's being celebrated. You know, I, I want that. I, I, I want that for myself. Let, honey, let's, let's sell our property and, and let's get some, some of our own glory. And so they sold the property. And they were not sincere with it. They were insincere. Whereas Barnabas was sincere and genuine with his generosity. With them, there was deceit and greed. And they lied. And they flat out lied. I always remember my grandfather. There was always one thing that my grandfather would, would hold on to. And that was if I didn't tell the truth. And right here, they didn't just lie to man. But they lied to the Holy Spirit. And then right here in verse 5, it says this. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all those who had, uh, who had heard what had happened. All right, folks, thank you very much. Just kidding. I can't end on that one. It says, then some young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. And right here, we see something that's pretty radical. And this is where God is setting a precedence. And if you look back to Joshua chapter 6, you have where God, you know, tears down uh, Jericho, and, you know, there's a great victory. And God told Joshua and, and his people, he said, look, no matter what, just don't you have to burn and get rid of everything that is followed of Jericho. Keep nothing for yourself. So you go to, you go to chapter 7, 
and Joshua sends a group of men to go scope out this other um, town. They come back, they're like, oh, we don't even need the full army. Uh, this is a little town. We don't need anybody. Let's just go there and, and take them out and, 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 and take the land for ourselves. So they go, and sure enough, they get smoked. They get wiped out. And they come back, and Joshua and all the people are, 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 are panicking. They don't know what to do. They say they're sprinkling dust on their heads. They're crying and wailing. And God just says, hey, stop. <laughs> this, you know, stand up. This, someone amongst you has sinned. And in fact, chapter 7 is called Achan's sin. Achan had taken some property from Jericho and kept it from himself and because of that, when they went to fight all these men, they lost. They were smoked. And so Joshua brings Achan out and his family and convicts him of it. And sure enough, Achan admits to it. And right there, boom, Achan, Achan his whole family, and even his animals were put to death. And that's a radical story. Just like Acts chapter 5, it's one of those stories where you're like, holy moly. But right here, if you see, when God was, God was set into precedence, God was telling his people, look, here we are. It's the beginning of my people in, in, in Israel. We're going to the promised land. And in Acts chapter 5, it's, hey, it's the beginning of the Christian church. And what we have to realize is the destruction of sin. The most de devastating thing we see here in both the church, but also in our own personal lives, is the destruction of sin. In fact, one commentator says this, in both accounts, the act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. And we have to realize that God hates sin. Not the sinner, but the sin that is in our lives. In fact, I think back to John chapter 11, where Jesus condoles, you know, uh, Martha, then he condoles Mary, and then he walks up to the tomb where Lazarus is dead. And it said he looks at the stone, he, he has him pulled away, and it says Jesus quaked with anger. Jesus looked at death. It looked at, he looked at what sin had done. And he knew that he was going to go to the cross for our sins. And he said that he quaked with anger. Because he knew that. And we have to be people who do our best to avoid sin. And in verse 7 it says this. About three hours later. That was a long church service by the way. His wife came in. Not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her. Tell me. Is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? You see, right here, she had an opportunity. She had an opportunity to confess. She had an opportunity to, 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 to admit what she had done. She had an opportunity. Peter gave her a chance. But instead, she says this, yes, that is the price. You see, she had planned the lie. She committed the lie. And then she reinforced the lie. And right here in verse 9, Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the man who buried your husband at the door will bury you and will carry you out also. And then verse 10 through 11, it says, at this moment she fell down at the feet and died. And the young man came out, came in and finding her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. And verse 11, great fear seized the whole church. And that heard about these events. I think there's a lot of times too, in, at least in my own walk, where I tend to forget who God really is. And I think it's important for us to know that there 
it is healthy for us to have a healthy fear of God. Because I think a lot of times we forget who God is. I know Anais and Sapphira, but they forgot. They forgot who God really is, that he is the God of the universe, that he's the creator, that he's the author and perfecter of all things. And we need to have a healthy fear of God. As it says in verse 4, you weren't lying to us, but you were lying to God. And I remember I've heard so many people say, well, look, God has to forgive me. No matter what I do, God has to forgive me. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, it says this, do not insult the spirit of grace because sin at its core is selfishness. And so in this, realizing these two things, realizing that God hates sin, not the sinner, but sin, that we have to have a healthy fear of God, how do we respond to becoming an authentic, real person, becoming an authentic, real follower of Christ? And here are the two things that I want you to think about in response to this action steps. Number one, we have to become real with ourselves. We have to become real with God, what is God is doing, and we have to stop being fake. We have to be authentic. You know, there's a quote that I heard. It says that we are far more critical of others than we are of ourselves. Matt Brown says this, we judge others by our worst actions and ourselves by our best intentions. You know, if we're in a store with our kids and they're acting up, you know, we smack them, we blame our kids. If we see another kid, you know, another parent with their parent with their kids and they smack their kids, you think to yourselves, oh my goodness, what are those people doing? You know, we judge others by their worst actions and ourselves by our best intentions. We have to be honest with ourselves. We have to look in the mirror and realize and ask ourselves, am I truly being authentic in my life? And the other important thing is this, we have to develop authentic relationships. I remember for me, one of, the, one of my closest friends, I was in a relationship that I should not have been. This is years and years ago. And he called me under the carpet for it. And had, I, had he not, my life would have gone in an entirely different direction. And it's because I had that authentic relationship. I had a real relationship with this guy. And we were real with each other. He was able to hold me accountable and call me under the carpet. And I listened to them. And so our takeaway from this is this. Our takeaway should be the same as those who witnessed it. Fear and awe. That God is a holy God who vanquishes evil and zealously defends his holiness. His judgments are his, and he only makes some of them known. But luckily for us, Acts chapter 5, Joshua chapter 7 is not the norm. Luckily for us, these are radical instances in the Bible where God sets a precedence, where God shows, hey, look, I still am a God of justice. I still am a God that you should have a healthy fear of. I do not love sin, but at the end of the day, we still follow a God who loves us more than we could comprehend. We follow a God who went to the cross and died for our sins. We need to remember at this time to be generous with our resources to find people and have authentic relationships. And we need to remember that at the end of the day, we need to be authentic ourselves in our everyday life, both in and away from the church. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to open it up to questions. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. And God, of course, I went over time, and forgive me for that. Uh, but Lord, we thank you for this tough passage, Lord where you still teach us so much, God, where you teach us, Father, that you want us to be authentic, where you teach us, God, that you want us to be generous, that you want us to have real relationships, Lord. 
that God, that we need to have a healthy fear of you, Lord, that we need to realize the destruction of sin, God, both in our lives, but also the lives of church, Lord. Lord, how tough relationships can be, God, both in the church and away from it, God. That we are constantly fighting an enemy, Lord, who comes and tries to kill, steal, and destroy. Who tries to bring us away from you, Lord, who is the king of lies. And that we need to be filled with your Holy Spirit, Father. That you need to work in and through us, God. That we can avoid these things, Lord. I love you so very much. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. All right. So, are there any questions out there? Do you have questions? Where am I looking here? Right here. What does it imply when Peter say you must obey God and not man? I can't read. It's do we go against our leaders and political politicians? To, I can't. It's hard. It's off the screen. Oh, here we go. What is implied when Peter says you must obey God and not man? Do we go against our leaders and politicians to do God's work? This is a complicated question. This is a good question. And, uh, you know, because if you see in the book of Acts, there are several different, in fact, if you see uh, the second part of chapter five, um, they're brought before, the, you know, um, the Sanhedrin, they're, they're brought before the Jewish leaders, and they're basically saying, hey, you need to stop talking about God. You need to stop talking about Jesus. You guys are, you guys are, are, are crazy. They're, 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 you shouldn't be talking about Jesus and spreading the gospel. And Peter says, listen, who, who is it better to obey, you or God. And at that point, it says the, the political leaders at that point just kept shut. But then if you look at other points in, in, in the scripture where God, God does say to follow the leadership, to pray for those who are in leadership, to give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God. And so I think that's a fine balance. And here's the deal at the end of the day. Do we go against the leaders and politicians to do God's work? There is, as we see in the church, there is a lot of different opinions on who's right and who's wrong to begin with. There are some of us who are on the far left who think this and that. There are some of us who are on the very far right in the political world who believe this and believe that. And both sides, there's, there, there's a lot of people like me who are right in the middle who think yes and no to both and yes and no to both. And if you ask people on each side, they wholeheartedly believe, without a doubt, that what they believe politically, what they believe to be, I mean, we could even question what is God's work. They believe what they believe is to be right. And I think for us as a church, in that unification, if we go back up to the, to the first couple of passages right there in, in verse 32, it says, all believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of the possessions were their own, but they shared everything that they had. I think it's important to realize that they were all one. Now, here, here's a group of people who are all one, but they still had different values. They still had different beliefs. They still had differences of opinions of uh, what they thought about this part of Scripture or what God said about this or what did this or, or in Genesis, what about this and all these different things. They still had these different beliefs, but at the end point, they were able to put those things aside they were able to acknowledge those things, and they were able to say, look, we're still going to be one in heart and in mind. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is at work. And us living in America, I can tell you this much. We have freedom. We, don't, we do not have, quote, unquote, the religious persecution that other countries have. 
where we don't even have to technically really worry about the things that would directly contradict what the Bible says. Now, there are a lot of things that we should stand for and all these other things, but at the end of the day, we should strive as all believers to be one in heart and mind. And so that didn't quite answer your question, but there's a lot of facets to that question. All right, what's next? What does testing the Holy Spirit look like today? I think that, um, was that a question? No, right here. We can easily get caught up in the pursuit of appearance and pride. Absolutely. Uh, this verse appears to show jealousy, a jealous spirit and nice and sapphire towards the attention. Barnabas received over selling a piece of property. Uh, I lost you. Selling, there you go. Towards the attention of Barnabas received over selling a piece of property and donating the funds. What are your thoughts? I 100% agree. Um, right here, in fact, I made that point. If you go down um, to verse, to chapter 5, um, verses 1 and 2, they do all these things, and then Peter calls them out. Um, you know, 100%, they looked at Barnabas, and they thought, uh, well, Barnabas is getting all this attention. Uh, he, he's getting uh, praise from people. And, you know, when the disciples decided to praise Barnabas, when the Bible brings to light Barnabas, it's not to celebrate Barnabas. It's to look at the actions of Barnabas. Because true generosity looks like this. If you're truly generous, if you're tithing to the church, there's a couple different things that should be in place when you're tithing to the church. Number one, no one but the church should know about it. And you shouldn't be getting the glory for it. And number two, it's all about God's anyways. It's God's money. It's, it's everything that we have on this earth that is good, that we have been given, that we've been blessed to receive. It's all God's anyways. So we're called to be stewards on God's behalf. And something to provoke your thoughts, something that our experience that we're currently going through in our own life, I think has caused us in a first world country to take a step back and to reevaluate our own value system. Because, you know, some of you are in a place right now where financially you are fine going through this, going through this. Your, your job is still in place. Um, you know, everything's this and that. And then there are, there are others, people who are on the exact opposite spectrum who have lost their job, who are in a scary place. And it causes us to step back and look back at our own values of what we value. Because I hear about it all the time. I have friends, uh, I, I've, I've had conversations with friends. You know, uh, their life is leveraged. And yet, when it comes to generosity to the church with their finances, it's not really there. And so, we as people, just like a nice safari, and that's a scary thing. We all look. We all look and, and see what others have and see what people are doing. And we could see it like a guy like Barnabas. And it's not just a nice safari, but... We all, if we look at, if we look, if we're honest with ourselves and look in the mirror, we all have those thoughts. And God's saying, "Look, it's not about the seat. It's not about your own personal praise. It's about God's glory." He said, "God hates sin and not the sinner. So why does God strike them down rather than give them grace?" That's a great question. My daughter, my six-year-old daughter, when I'm when I was reading this passage, I was listening to a commentary on this, and my six-year-old asked that same question. I was like, what a profound question for a six-year-old. And that's the million-dollar question. And as we saw in, in Joshua chapter 7 and, ver- and chapter 8, uh, or Joshua 6 and J- chapter 6 and chapter 7, here we have the beginning of God's chosen people 
going into the promised land. It's a new beginning. And here we have the beginning in Acts chapter 5. We have uh, the beginning of the Christian church. And for some reason, God seems to be protecting the new beginnings. Um, God seems to um, want to set a precedence that, uh, that he is warning us as people that, look, at the end of the day, what brought destruction to this? It was sin. It was the wrong motives. It was the devil coming in and filling their lives and filling their hearts. It was greed. It was lying. It was deceit. And fortunately for us, this is not the norm. This is not normal. But what the people did, it said at the very end, it said, you know, people were in shock and in awe. It said, great fear filled the land. Well, heck yeah, if you're standing there witnessing this thing, you watch, you watch two people drop dead over lying, doesn't necessarily, the crime doesn't seem, you know, the, the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. Holy cow, that's going to cause some fear. But fortunately for us, this is not God's normal thing, but he is setting a precedence here. Any other questions? Last question. I feel like it's important to address the question of why God hates sin, wraps back around to his love for us. Actually, absolutely true. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And if you look, and once again, you go to John chapter 11, and I love this. I love John chapter 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And here you have, um, you have Martha who comes out, and Jesus consoles her and says, don't worry, he's gonna, he's, I'm going to raise him from the, you know, everything's going to be fine. And then he goes to Mary. And here's the thing that you have to, here, here's one of the most profound things in Scripture. The shortest verse in the whole Bible says, Jesus wept. He wept for, and I've heard commentaries say this for a couple of reasons. Number one, he obviously felt the pain of his great friends because he's going there knowing wholeheartedly that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows Lazarus is not going to stay dead, that the funeral, that this was going to go from a funeral to a party, that this was going to go from a somber, horrible, sad day to a day of celebration and excitement and partying. Jesus knew that. So why did he weep? He wept. Because he knew that while he was going to be able to save this funeral, while he was going to change this funeral and turn this funeral into a day of somber to a day of partying, that before him and after him, that there was going to be funeral after funeral after funeral that he couldn't interject in. And why? Because when he stood and he looked at the tomb and he saw that it was the sin and destruction that brought Lazarus to his death. Not the sins that he committed, but the sins that were committed from the beginning of time with Adam and Eve. And then he knew that this was going to cause destruction and pain throughout all of humanity. It says he stood there and he quaked with anger. And because of that, God hates sin so much that he sent his only son. That whoever shall believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That he has given us an opportunity because of his grace and because of his mercy to have a true and right relationship with him. That despite him hating sin, he still died on a cross for us. And so absolutely it's very important to, while God hates sin, he loves us the sinner. So thank you very much. I'm going to pass the buck. Appreciate it very much. Thank you for listening. 
For more information, visit our website at goldcountrychurch.org.